Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of About Abortion, joined once again by Tim for our second in our mini-series on common objections. And if you didn't hear our first one, do go back and listen to that. We looked at um, the, the, the fear, the objection, what if I upset people, what if I cause offence? Uh, do go back and listen to that. Uh, and, and as we said last time, uh, our hope really is that this will help, that this will really result in... Um, pastors, teachers, um, being emboldened and encouraged and equipped to stand up and, and speak into this issue from the front uh, so that all the people of God can hear about this vital issue in the light of um, the scriptures. Uh, and so we're, we're trying to encourage, uh, meaning that word literally, sort of speak courage into um, teachers, uh, but also help with those specific objections um that get in the way so uh tim great to have you again thank you uh as ever for all your your um input here so so tell us tim uh last time we looked at offense and upset uh what are we looking at today hi dave hi everyone so today we're looking at the the objection that really this this thing called abortion which itself is a bit of a euphemism but but we we use it for sometimes for convenience sake this thing called abortion is really a women's issue Okay, so this is all about women. This is this affects them, and really, you know, therefore, what right do you have as as a man to speak into it? Certainly, to speak with the kind of authority that obviously would come from speaking from the pulpit, from the front of a church on, on a Sunday morning, or in a kind of you know a, a definitive kind of church statement or, or, or teaching series. So, yeah, I, and of course, related to that is a little bit of a problem because, by and large, you know, I've I've a through theological conviction or, or just because that's the way it is more churches than not are led by men more men will preach than women so so if that is the case and if you're in a church where where women don't preach then then de facto you're never going to hear anything about it really so there's a, there's a problem there which we'll come on to in more detail but yeah essentially it's the objection that as men we shouldn't really be be going there it's it's not for us to not for us to have a say on essentially hmm. and and i'll just uh say at this stage again as with all these objections we're looking at these are real life, commonly heard objections. And I had this one really quite recently, um, speaking with a pastor. Um, uh, there's a church that I um, I was uh, asked to come speak in and in the kind of lead up conversations, um, the pastor was relaying to me some of the questions or objections. And I think that, you know, not all of these were necessarily attempts to to jettison the whole thing or anything like that these are i think real questions not necessarily deal breakers but um one of the questions that came up uh and has come up many times in other settings is is this question you know how can we as men speak into this issue uh, and in in some cases i think that is enough to stop anything happening at all um but in others i think it can uh, engender this sort of slightly apologetic approach where um, and I've heard examples of this where there are so many apologies and so many qualifications and so many sort of oh, I hate doing this and you know I really don't it's not my place and you know I'm just a man and so on and the message comes through sort of limping uh, uh, and 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 sort of so debilitated it's sort of you you, you feel like um the pastor doesn't even want to be there himself so it yeah so it's a real objection and and again that that was from a church where the very clear assumption and 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 position would be only men teach from the front anyway only men would preach and so even in that setting the that wasn't enough to answer the question of how can a man speak about this <laughs> in a sense what well, is very simple because if that's who's speaking then he's going to have to speak about this, you know, because yeah. the word of God has plenty to say about it. And it's a real life uh, issue that he's addressing as we looked at last time. So this is a really common one. Um, and even when it's not spoken or articulated, I do think that it's there kind of in the in the air. And uh, it's, it may well be in many cases the thing that is holding people back thinking well I've got I've got no right to speak or I, I don't feel confident perhaps I don't feel equipped and qualified uh, to speak um, and so I don't 
Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think what I want to do sort of initially is to lay out some of the biblical foundation, biblical basis for why we, why I don't think this is a strong objection or doesn't really hold up. But I think, I think that's really important. The last episode we did of, of this theme, we talked about maybe maybe even when when people go there on this theme there's a sort of death by a thousand qualifications and and it's a little bit like this you know we, we kind of stand up and, and apologize for being a man it's it, it's not unlike you know again in 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 the culture it's almost apologizing for your for your ethnicity at times you know if you happen to have a certain color skin and i i think we have to be really wary of that and I want to say something in a bit more detail at the end, really, about about feminism and and, and this kind of thing. And obviously, feminism is is a broad thing. But but something I found really helpful is the is the biblical scholar, the biblical theologian, uh, someone called Claire Smith, who, who's an Australian actually. But she has written. She has a nice phrase, really, rather about the fine the fine dust. Uh, of, of feminism, it's like the way when he said it was like something in the air, something in the atmosphere. It just kind of clicked that in my mind, and you know. So I think in a context where I guess you might have sandstorms, we don't really have those in the UK. But the, the sort of find us the idea that you know it gets into every surface, it kind of covers everything, it obscures vision, and it kind of becomes uh, all pervasive. And I think in many ways, feminism is a bit like that in our culture. It's kind of the air we breathe. And, and as I said, I'll, I'll touch on it a bit more broadly later on. And I think there's some some positive contributions. But I think more generally, I think it's been quite uh, debilitating of, 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 of conversation and, and argument, and particularly for the church. It's, it's for, but it is that sense. It's kind of it's 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 just there. And I think sometimes it's the things that that aren't fully articulated are the most difficult to kind of to kind of see and, 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 and to expose and to recognize. So I think that's really important just straight off the bat, really. Um, but why do I think this objection doesn't hold water? Why do I, why do I think it doesn't stand up? But I mean, I think, and, and why really do I think we need to speak about abortion, um, whether or not we're men, um, whatever our gender? I think because to, to really strip it down to, to basics, because in essence, women are loved by God. You know, women are precious to God. They are they are equal image bearers with men. And if we really believe that, then then as pastors, as preachers, there will be a concern to speak truth precisely into this reality, which affects women and girls in a particular way. Uh, not least, of course, those who have who have gone through with abortions, those who are who are post-abortive. Now, framing it that way. Let please hear me right. I'm not saying that we're dumping all responsibility for abortion on women. Far from it. I think actually that's the I think the opposite is the case. Actually, um, men are very much responsible, along with women, for the decision to abort. And I think very often it's more so men pressuring, pressurizing women, forcing girlfriends, etc., partners to do this than 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 the other way around. I would stake my life on that actually. Sometimes, of course, it's the, it's the woman's choice. Um, don't want to don't want to sort of pretend that's not the case either. But I think far more often than not, men are responsible for the decision to abort. But either way, here's the thing: abortion affects women in a particular way. Of course, it affects them physically first and foremost, but it also affects them emotionally. And that's another one of the lies of our culture that abortion is something like a something like having your tonsils out or your appendix out. It's just that you know, it's a it's a value-free, completely morally neutral thing that you can just recover from and, and be back at work the next day or even in the afternoon. That's that's not what it is. You've taken a human life and that has an impact. So it simply won't do. You know, I can't let myself off the hook, so to speak, by saying, well, you know, do you know what? I'm a, I'm a bloke. I don't really understand. Let's just move on, you know. Let's stick to something I'm a bit more comfortable with. And actually, I would say to fall into that trap, it is a trap, is to replicate the response of so many men when a female partner finds herself pregnant. Yeah. Nothing to do with me. You're on your own now here. You know, It's a complete and utter dereliction of responsibility. It is cowardly. It's the very opposite of loving. It's the very opposite of loving women, okay? And, and so it is with men, particularly, I guess I'm speaking to men, who refuse to teach on abortion. It's a dereliction of responsibility. It is cowardly, and it's the very 
opposite of, of loving. It's the very opposite of, of being loving to women. And, and you know, in biblical theological terms, it's, it's, a, it's a pattern as old as Adam and Eve, isn't it? It's conceding territory to the enemy and trusting those who should have been in our care to the jurisdiction of the evil one. So, so I simply, you know, to not speak and preach on abortion is not loving to women. And if, if anyone is still tempted to dispute this, I would simply point them in the direction of Jesus and his ministry. Um, in case anyone's under any illusions, Jesus was himself a bloke. He was a man, okay? Jesus lived, in fact, in a much more gendered society in many ways than ours. Some, some would say patriarchal. Have a discussion about that. But that does not stop Jesus again and again going out of his way to speak with, to interact with, actually, uh, women, to honour women, to bless them, and to heal them. Okay, Jesus heals many, many children in the Gospels. He also heals a, a very high number of women. And it's interesting, very rarely actually does Jesus address women directly as daughter. Okay, um, very rarely does that, does that happen. But in each of the synoptic Gospels, this is the term Jesus uses for the woman who is healed from the issue of blood, um, which, again, we don't know exactly what that was, but it's most likely a gynecological condition, uh, so a women's issue, we might say. Jesus doesn't sort of hide away from that. He doesn't back off. He's not a little bit freaked out by it. Jesus involves himself. He makes a point, actually, of drawing attention to the situation. You could have probably got away with it. Oh, you've healed me, wonderful. But he draws attention to the situation, probably to the embarrassment of the of the male disciples and other onlookers, let's let's be honest. Jesus says, No, this is this woman is a daughter of Abraham. She is much loved and she is restored. So that is the pattern we see with Jesus. And of course, you know, there's there's many places we go in the scriptures. If you talk about John's gospel, we think particularly, don't we, of the long conversation Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. This is John chapter four, which again is something of a scandal to the disciples. You know, he's talking to a woman, and, and what sort of a woman like that? Now, again, it's very clear. This is where we kind of often mix things up in our mind. We think, in our mind, we, we think, okay, well, we're either going to be really super loving and affirm everything, or we're going to be super judgmental and condemn everyone. That's not how Jesus said. Jesus doesn't condone this string of relationships the woman's had. You know, clearly, her life is a mess. But he makes clear that they do not define her. Only a relationship with the living God can bring her the kind of identity, the security, the value, the love, the affirmation she, she craves. And then even more pointedly, a few chapters on in, in, in John, Jesus finds himself in this situation where he's presented with a woman who's been apparently, we're told, caught in the very act of adultery. And he's asked to pass judgment on her. Now, Jesus, what he does here, once again, is teaching is brilliant. He confounds the Pharisees who, who wish him to kind of uh, make that judgment. And of course, this is another situation where the man in question, okay, she's not being committing adultery with herself. The man in question has exited stage left, leaving the woman to take the flak. Let's just note that. Jesus treats her with dignity, with compassion, with love, while it's very clear that she must sin no more. That's how the that's how the episode ends. Go and sin no more. So, given that kind of track record, why why would we imagine that Jesus' response to women caught up in abortion uh, would be any different? I don't think Jesus would ignore the issue. Certainly, as we've talked, you know, it is one in three women in the UK. This is not some niche thing. He would not pretend that two lives are not involved in every abortion. Jesus' worldview was was the, the Jewish scriptures, which value uh, life in the womb very highly, uh, taught very clearly about God being the one who enables pregnancy, God being the one who forms the unborn child. So, so, so this is not just a a pregnancy for Jesus or a lump of tissue. This is a child. But neither would he simply condemn a repentant woman who had had an abortion. Or, I think, turn away a frightened pregnant woman or girl who was considering one. Uh, and what he certainly wouldn't do is abandon her to the abortion clinic. Okay, So, so I think, you know, I, and I think we would look at Jesus' teaching, we would look at Jesus' attitudes on a whole number of issues and think, yeah, that, you know, we can kind of extrapolate from what we see in the Gospels, from his patterns, from his general demeanour, from how he treats people, to a whole range of issues. But for some reason, we, again, we're a little bit unwilling to 
to go there on this. Even so, someone might respond, well, okay, that's fine. Jesus, he's, you know, he's the, he's the, he's the gold standard. He always balances love and truth perfectly. But, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. I can't aspire to his standards. I'm never going to kind of perfectly combine that. I'm never going to hit that mark. So it's probably safer for me actually just to leave off preaching in this area in case I get it a bit wrong, in case I do a bit too much of the truth or a bit too much of the love. You know, I, I'm just going to not go there. The problem again with that approach is it equally ignores not just Jesus' teaching, but the extensive teaching on topics like marriage, uh, divorce, childbearing in the epistles, including advice that's directly for Christian women and wives. Think of Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. So, so, so Peter, uh, Paul will often give, okay, here's a bit of advice specifically for the men, here's something for the women or the wives, and here's something for uh, the children. So, you know, there is specific teaching for, for Christian women, for Christian wives in the epistles by people other than Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 7, there's a very long discussion about, as I say, marriage, uh, divorce, that kind of thing. But let me pull out a couple, just to close this section, a couple of scriptures from the pastoral epistles. So that's 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Not least, I think, because these are probably less taught on. And because what we've we've talked about this kind of the, the, the fine dust of feminism, the feminist mood of our age. I, I think there's a lot in the pastorals that doesn't necessarily chime with that. People find it quite difficult. And if we were to consider the totality of the New Testament's teaching on women, there would be a huge amount more to say. We would talk about the female disciples in the Gospels who are often faithful when the men have fled the scene. We talk about Jesus' first resurrection appearance, of course, being to a woman, Mary Magdalene. And then when we come to Acts in the early church, we see women involved in ministry in all sorts of settings and contexts, serving alongside Paul, evangelizing, uh, prophesying, Philip's daughters, for example, uh, uh, praying, serving the poor, hosting churches. So there's an awful lot to women in, in the New Testament. So the pastorals, it's not the complete picture, but it's a part of the picture. And a part of that picture um, from God's word involves motherhood. Okay. And the pastorals are quite, they have that focus, really. So just two scriptures, really. 1 Timothy 5.14. Uh, this is Paul uh, addressing the church uh, leader, Timothy. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So what we see is, is marriage and childbearing as a God-given part of life. You know, the facts of life are that only women can bear children. That's a unique privilege women have, um, and I think it's a privilege, it's a responsibility that should be cherished. It's one particular way in which their love for God, their Christian discipleship is actually worked out in the world and, and exercised in a very powerful way. Um, and, and actually, just very practically, you know, you, you see that all the time. The opportunities, for example, my wife has for coming alongside non-Christians, um, for, for befriending women um, within that setting of, you know, maybe going to a toddler group or, or sort of early years of, of preschool, nursery and stuff. They're far more, actually, than, than I have. She, she, you know, doors are open through that ministry, um, through that stage of life that are simply shut to, 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 to me and I guess a, a lot of men. So that's 1 Timothy 5. Uh, and, and needless to say, as I say, the Old Testament as, or the New Testament, sorry, as the New, regards children as blessing and gift. Blessing. Titus 2, just two verses from Titus 2, 3 to 4. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So again, there's this focus on the rearing and the nurture of children. It's an area in which women glorify God in a unique way. You know, this is one of the most precious things we can do to invest in the lives of the next generation. That's costly, that's demanding. You know, if you spend time with, with children, you'll realize it, it's, it, it is. It's hard work. And mothers in this benefit, actually, from the wisdom of those women who've gone before. That's why, you know, it suggests that older women are to help and teach the, the young woman how this all works. So a little bit of a snapshot 
there from the pastoral epistles. The point in me bringing that out is that in both cases, Paul has no qualms at all in offering direct spiritual counsel and instruction to women, even though, again, breaking news, he isn't a woman, he's a, he's a man. Now, as I say, in some churches, actually to teach those scriptures from the pastorals would likely get people's backs up. But that all that means, I think, is that our radar is off. It's not God's. We should never apologize for a Christian worldview, even if at times that does antagonize people, men or women. So a little bit of the scriptural background there, Dave, and, and, and Jesus' example to, to why I think this, this objection simply doesn't hold up. Thanks, Tim. That is really, really helpful. Um, really helpful, because what I think you've helped us to see there is that even if we're to concede that this is a woman's issue, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but even if this were a woman's issue, there would be every reason for men to speak into it. Um, as you say, Jesus didn't hold off from that. The pastoral epistles don't hold off. And that's part of good pastoring. You know, it's you don't just... Uh, cut off an entire demographic in this case half of your congregation as they well are never going to speak to them uh, never going to help them to think biblically about issues facing them but no good pastoring means uh, helping people uh, to apply the word of God and and prayer and everything to their daily walk and of course it, it's a it's, it's a it's ne ne negligent isn't it to to leave entire groups of people outside of that council uh, i'm thinking for example yes so so women need uh, instruction and encouragement in motherhood especially in our day when motherhood is so despised by our culture it's a waste of time everyone's saying oh when are you going to get get back to work and oh this must be so unfulfilling for you oh your your brain must be turning to mush and all this kind of stuff well actually maybe now more than ever uh, women need encouragement in uh, mothering um, there are other women who uh, are single, whether by choice or, or, or otherwise, they need encouragement and instruction. Um, and, you know, there are other passages, aren't there, we can look at in the scriptures in the New Testament, where uh, Paul, for example, talks about uh, what women should wear, how they should um, present themselves. These are all really important issues. And again, a man speaking into those issues. Now there's going to be, of course, you know, uh, yeah. It's important that we are discreet, and um, I, I remember John Piper using a, a term, something along the lines of verbal modesty or something in the way that we speak. We don't want to be, um, we don't want to humiliate people with our words. We don't want to be, um, as it were, pornographic in our language, um, sort of uh, the verbal equivalent of, of what would be visually inappropriate. So. Yes, there's a call for modesty and discretion and so on, but we're not to leave these things um, out of the picture because they matter. And and God does have something to say on all these issues. Um, I think there's something akin to um, parenting, isn't there? In, in in pastoral work, it's a bit like being a father. Um, imagine if I had sons and daughters, and I just you know, cut off my daughters from, from all sorts of involvement and teaching because they're girls and I'm a man. Well, no, there might be some things, of course, where the mother's better placed for some of the, the finer details, but but we are um, called to parent our sons and our daughters um, and, and we shouldn't um, disqualify ourselves from, from speaking into important areas that, that God's word does address but i think uh, uh, so that's all you know let's let's grant for a moment that this is a woman's issue we still have to speak into it but in fact it's not a woman's issue or it's not only a woman's issue and one of the things i try to say when pastors or others raise this objection is is i i i, I sometimes say something on the lines of well if this were just a woman's issue then perhaps one could understand that objection although i think as you said tim even then scriptures would would come against it but, but we have to actually ask, what is it? What is abortion? Is it just a gynecological issue? And actually something that's um, perhaps unique about abortion is it is totally a woman's issue and totally a man's issue and totally a child's issue. And perhaps we should say, first and foremost, it's a child's issue because the child has their life ended 
through abortion. And so it is a, an issue which strikes right at the heart of man, woman and child. It strikes right at the heart of the family. Um, and in fact, it's part of Satan's assault on the family and the destruction of the family. And one um, front of that attack is Satan saying to us, and it is from Satan, uh, men can't speak into this because it's a woman's issue. And so what happens there? Well, if we obey that, women are left out on their own, isolated, and having to deal with this um, without any help, so often from the partner, from the man, the father, uh, from their pastor, perhaps. They are utterly isolated. And we're told that that's how we empower them and we respect them and we love them. In fact, no, that's how we abandon them. And I think, as you say, it's not only a dereliction of duty when the father of the child abandons the mother, even saying, yep, you do what's right for you. It's also a dereliction by other men. Um, and I think as men, we have a, a quasi fatherly duty that goes beyond our own family. Certainly if we're pastors, we have that kind of duty towards our, our flock in a quite a specific and defined way. But more broadly in society, we're called to, to, to care for the orphan and the widow. That's a quasi-fatherly thing. Um, we're meant to look out for the poor. Uh, you read the great figures of the Old Testament, like Job, for example. He took on a sort of fatherly role, didn't he? With with every stranger that came within a sort of 20-mile radius. I mean, he, yeah, who hasn't had their fill of Job's meat? You know, it's, it, it sort of extends out further. And that's the biblical um vision really for for, for for manhood for what it means to be a man actually there is a whether we're biological fathers or not we have this god-given design feature of of being paternal of being defenders of being um leaders and so on and so i think actually um if it were just a gyne issue we would still have to speak about it in the right way, uh, but it is not fundamentally a gynae issue. It is fundamentally an issue of innocent children being sacrificed to the idols of our day. It's a spiritual issue. It's a justice issue. It's an issue of loving our neighbor. Um, it also strikes at the heart of family and ev every abortion is, is it, uh, could I say every? Probably I can say every abortion. Um, every abortion is actually ultimately uh, because of a man. It's it, the conception is because of a man, and if, if an abortion has taken place, uh, I suppose one could imagine a situation in which uh, the man did everything he could to save the child, um, but somehow was unable to. But in almost every case, let's say, uh, an abortion takes place because a man has either demanded that or abandoned the woman to that um, or didn't even know that he was fathering a child because he wasn't that involved in the relationship. So um, it is such a man's issue. Uh, and it's because we're men that we have to speak into it. It's because we're men, uh, biblically understood, that we must speak into this issue. And I, I'm often... Um, uh, reminded of our word virtue um, the etymology of our word virtue um, really the Latin virtus uh, related to the, to the Latin word via which is the word for man um, so originally it had that that colouring of courage and manliness and now of course we, we use the word virtue and it's it's kind of broader it means all sorts of different virtues not just courage but right at the heart of how God's designed men to be is to take courage and to defend. And it's for that reason we must uh, speak about abortion. Absolutely. And I think the other the other sort of red herring in the argument, in, in how the way the argument's set up initially is, well, if you're not a woman, you cannot speak about this particular issue if you've not had an abortion yourself, you know, because because yes, every man is involved in an abortion, but obviously it's it's the woman who has the abortion. You know, how many issues are there, sort of social ethical issues, where one speaks with 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 sometimes great authority and 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 great um, 
a great sense that God is on our side, where this isn't something that has actually affected us directly. And, and, and I guess a prime example of this would be something like um, racism, you know, whereby no, you know, no, no church, I'm just going to say no church, because, yeah, a racist church is, I think it's dubious it could be called a church, but no church would in any way, shape or form want to condone racism. So therefore, their teaching and preaching is going to be exposing the lie of, of racism. And it is actually an anthropological line. It goes right back to an understanding that obviously some human beings are superior to others because of their skin tone, which is just just rubbish but it's also rubbish from a christian perspective because god has made all people act 17 god has made the whole world from from one man actually and and that's where that's where of course you get into problems because from a Darwinian perspective you do introduce concepts of kind of progress and and and, and sort of superiority and actually from a christian judeo-christian perspective racism is actually impossible theologically you you know there, there have been churches in the past that have been held racist positions absolutely but theologically anthropologically there's no basis for it whatsoever but my point is is really most people standing up uh, in churches to condemn racism are probably white and probably haven't themselves necessarily been the victims of racism it's not been their lived experience we might say but what does that de facto you know um preclude them from making some kind of of course not and we could take, you know, a whole range of issues where that was the case. You know, we speak out against human trafficking. How many church leaders have been trafficked? You know, so why on this particular issue do we construct this elaborate kind of? Again, you kind of think well, this, we're, we're snatching at straws to kind of find reasons to not to go there, really. But does that does that raise something? Does that chime? Does that is that helpful as an analogy? I think it's very helpful because, as you say, on the one hand, you've got every church very clear and of course when this whole George Floyd thing uh, came out um, many churches just felt this sudden compulsion to issue statements uh, to say how unracist they were as if any of them were racist before that moment you know as if as if um, as if as if there were any churches where you know people of a certain skin color wouldn't be welcome and I'm not saying there's never an issue of racism you know we're in a fallen world and the church isn't perfect but um, within days, you know, every church had felt this pressure to issue a statement on racism. And as you say, regardless of their own skin colour, they did that. Um, so, that, so that proves, yes, we, we don't have to have lived experience to say what's true. And on an issue where we happen to be on the same side as the, uh, as the general population, that's very easy. And we, we don't take shelter behind these objections of, well, I'm not... I'm not black, so I can't possibly say, as we do with abortion. So I think what's really going on there, as you say, it is it is clawing around for excuses not to speak sometimes, whether deliberately or knowingly or not, because um, because that that objection didn't hold. And yet, on the other hand, what we also saw at that time was that people who wanted to go into the issue in any great depth felt that they had to have someone who wasn't white as that speaker. And so that same kind of thinking could be observed also with that issue of racism. So uh, I can think of networks of churches who, you know, if they had a, a pastor who was black, he all, all, all of a sudden became the expert on racism. Sure. sure. Um, and actually, that's, you know, we talked about the fine dust of feminism, which is which is certainly having an impact. There's also the fine dust of, I don't know what to call it, the fine dust of, lived experience is the ultimate authority you know if you haven't got lived experience you are not qualified to speak and and so it was that you've got um the the, the likes of, of ben lindsay um held up as the one of the great experts of of uh, on racism within the church um and i have to say I, i've not read his stuff in detail but i've read some of his stuff and some of it i think is is badly wrong it is unbiblical. In fact, it is itself racist because I think he's embraced some of this critical race theory stuff, which is itself racist. But because he's black, he's considered to be uh, more authoritative than someone who might be white, uh, but actually is holding closer to scripture. And so whether it's um, 
feminism per se, or whether it's more this idea of you can only speak if you have lived experience or if you happen to be in that kind of identity group in question. And we see it as well with the uh, same-sex attraction stuff, don't we? Um, It's only those who've got lived experience of same-sex attraction that are deemed to be qualified to speak on it. And yet, in many cases, what they're saying is biblically not sound. But I, what I'm seeing increasingly, um, and we saw this, I think, at Keswick, didn't we, where, where it was, well, we have to have a woman speak on this issue. Um, well, hang on, what's this woman actually going to say? Is is it sound or is it not? Let's talk about what's sound first and biblical, because actually the, the claim that was made that, um, that the Christian response to abortion is to be non-directive, well, how does that uh, hang together with go and sin no more? That's Jesus being directive. But that issue mattered less than, well, as long as the, the speaker has the right gender, that then we're in, we're on safe ground. And similarly, again, at Keswick, you've got people speaking into same-sex attraction issues. And because they are themselves, because they've experienced that or they struggle with that, they're deemed to be the qualified people. And yet, again, sometimes I fear what's being shared has brought way too much into the thinking of the world in terms of this is how I am, this is my identity, don't try and change me, all that kind of stuff, even if they would, and as they do, clearly condemn um, activities that are unbiblical. Um, the, the, to me, so many, and again, these are conservative evangelical people, their concern is to have the right person up front, uh, so-called, uh, rather than the right message. And and the, and what that signifies is a very um, is a very important um, and indeed a dangerous shift in terms of the the seat of authority. It's away from scripture itself, God's word is the authority, to lived experience or being in the right identity group. That is the seat of authority. That's what qualifies you, and that's in some cases a subtle shift because these people uh, themselves will identify as being in both groups yeah i'm an evangelical i care about the word of god but i'm also you know this and that's what gives me authority you also see it with the, the, the sort of expert worship of okay we're talking about a medical issue apparently we need a doctor only a doctor's qualified to speak about the the ethics of this this issue because it's medical um and i think pastors are under this pressure from the culture to subcontract all sorts of different things to the to the relevant uh, authorities or experts, be that lived experience or professional experience. Um, and yet we do have to come back to, is the word of God sufficient? Does God qualify those he calls? And is it enough to speak God's word into these issues? And of course, you don't you don't overclaim, you don't claim to experience something you haven't experienced, but experience is not the foundation here. Um, so I think, yeah, I think when we look at other issues, on the one hand, we see less of a reluctance to speak because of these um, these reasons, and yet we do also see that same thinking beginning to infiltrate, and I think uh, do do um, material damage. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's I think that's really helpful. <laughs> It, and ironic as well, isn't it? Because it, you know, in, in in a previous generation where we would we would be very quick to point our fingers and well, well, they were racist and all the rest of it. You know, you might have someone who was brilliantly qualified and you know knew the scriptures like the back of their hand, but because they happened to be the wrong skin colour, they were they were barred from the pulpit. And now it's we've kind of gone, we've kind of flipped it around. So, okay, well, actually, it doesn't matter what you think or believe or what your doctrine scripture is. If you happen to have the quote unquote right skin colour for this assignment you're in and it's just like it is absolutely the world's thinking it's not it's not god's thinking um but i think it shows you how how wrong and how dangerous heresy is because the the ripple effects of 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 that sort of race uh racist heresy from however many hundreds of years ago are kind of this is part of the bitter fruit i think that we that we're reaping now in the church but yeah, I don't know whether I know time's getting on. Whether it's helpful just to say a little bit about about feminism and how that uh, relates to to Christianity and, and 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 Christian sort of belief and practice. Is that helpful? 
Yeah, I mean, if, if two men are allowed to talk about feminism, I guess. Yeah, well, I, th- I think we've gone there, so I think let's <laughs> let's crack on. I mean, I think the first thing to say, obviously, is, is, is there are it comes in there are different guises and it comes in different strengths, if you like, and 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 often feminism is split up into waves. So you have this kind of first wave, of the 19th, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, which really revolves around women's suffrage, um, so the right to vote, uh, and, and which I guess for many people. There will be a there will be a lot if if not the majority of that which we want to kind of commend and and stand with. Um, then you have sort of second wave feminism in the sixties seventies, which is much more about female emancipation, you know, female emancipation from the so called constraints of of things like marriage, motherhood, family life, and of course that crystallizes around sexual freedom and, and abortion. So abortion becomes a bit of a you know a rallying cause for this sort of second wave feminist movement and then sort of 90s onwards so-called third wave feminism like like a lot of things it gets much more fragmented but that emphasis i would say from second wave feminism on a kind of anti-biblical sexual agenda and certainly the 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 strident promotion of abortion has certainly continued there's been very little critical pushback from that so while there's commonalities between all three waves and there are some points i think not a huge number of points but some points perhaps where christians would would agree so for example a desire you know not to objectify not to sexualize women and girls um to strongly condemn male violence against women uh, and girls you know that would be things where we'd be very much standing shoulder to shoulder i think a, a christian understanding of gender is is much more complex i think it's much more rounded it's obviously rooted in god's good creation of men and women in the image and likeness of god and that reality we trace back right back to the first chapter of the bible genesis 1 where we're told we read in black and white that god made men and women in his in his image um so women are equally loved by god as i kind of we began with they're equally part of god's church family if they repent and believe the good news they're equally co-heirs with christ in whom in a profound way there is no longer kind of Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. However, a Christian anthropology would also affirm uh, a difference between the sexes, which exists in a kind of fundamental complementarity to, to glorify God. And this is, of course, where we'd largely part company with with the feminist movement, certainly the later feminist movement. Um, Christians would say motherhood, pregnancy is not a curse. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. Women have been created by God uniquely to grow and nurture new life. Only women have wounds. Okay, the Hebrew uh, word for compassion, for mercy, derives from the the Hebrew word for womb. It's it's so there's something that's built in uh, to creation about this, and and we reject or ignore this at our peril. And I think you know fundamentally, male or female bodies are not our own okay they belong to god so this thing my body my choice is a is a complete lie from the start you know we were redeemed at a price we are called to glorify god in our bodies rather than use our freedom as christians as some kind of dubious pretext for the destruction of another weak uh, vulnerable human life in the name of reproductive freedom reproductive justice women's rights you know there's no rights to kill a child period there's no right to kill a child whatever your gender okay because you're a woman doesn't give you a greater right to kill a child to take a child's life so essentially what we see i think in abortion is the very worst aspects of male oppression of male violence of male objectification against women um but but now redirected to the child so the child is silenced horrific violence is done to him or her and let's be clear in the majority of abortions it's actually girls who are killed in the womb and the very nature and status of that child as a beautiful image bearer is kind of smeared that they're dismissed as a parasite as a lump of tissue a cluster of cells and so if this is feminism and it's one part of feminism then certainly the christian can have absolutely no truck with this because it it goes as I say, a Christian anthropology and a Christian ethic on so many fronts, and it and it provides a kind of apology for abortion. So I think we need to be aware of that. And, and I think even if we're not, you know, even if we're not out and out feminists, I think we need to know where some of this narrative is going and where some of the narrative is set up 
to kind of provide the conclusions and the and the outcomes that that, 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 that certain section wants. So I think, yeah, I think we've got to go into it with with eyes open. As I say, it's a it's a disparate movement. It's diverse. I think that the, the different waves is quite a, a reasonably helpful way to think about it. There's some there's parts we want to affirm, but I think we need to be very clear actually that the bulk of second and third wave feminism I think is junk. I, I, and I think the church doesn't realise that by and large. Men or women, I think they've bought into it massively. And so to be a feminist is a kind of a badge of honour. I think most people think being a feminist means you want women to have sort of equal rights. And it's like, no, no, this is a much bigger package than that. This is a, this comes much more like critical race theory. This has a lot of baggage behind it. This is a lot of very anti-Christian um, baggage going into it. Yes, I think that's right. I think a lot of people uh, are completely unaware of some of the, um, yeah, what's what's included in this package. Yeah. Uh, and again, interesting, I know we keep coming back to it, but it is significant. The the, the talk at Keswick about abortion delivered by a woman, uh, she described herself as a feminist in that talk. Now, she may not have meant second wave, third wave, or uh, it wasn't clarified what she meant. Um, a lot of people just mean they think, women should be allowed to have jobs or vote or or be treated with respect or you know it, it can mean all sorts of different yeah. things however at the heart of this movement and i would say increasingly how it's expressed is actually it is a direct attack on women as god made women it's it's a it's trying to rewrite what women even are um it's often expressed nowadays as a hatred of motherhood um suggesting that children are a curse um suggesting that men and women are actually at odds with each other and in competition or that women need to be like men or better than men um it's it's a, a deeply divisive ideology in fact um and it is one of those ideologies we need to get to grips with we need to be wary of because it is having an impact and again, that, that phrase, the fine dust of feminism, it's really helpful because it settles, again, even, and I can think of examples where, um, again, I'm thinking of someone who uh, would have a very clear position on, certainly on Sunday mornings at least, only men do the teaching, and yet the fine dust of feminism is telling him that he has to consult women on what he's allowed to say or not allowed to say uh, when teaching on abortion and ultimately letting them have the final say and i would say doing so in a way that um actually is is serving to dilute um what is said in a way that's not warranted by scripture by all means consult for sure i i think all sorts of people can be consulted and how we can best go about our jobs of teaching um but the idea that a certain people group will have the final say simply because of their gender or skin color that's that's going beyond um what's written i want to um perhaps unless there's anything else tim i wanted to just close with um with with uh an observation from i think joe rigney i don't know if he came up with this but i read a phrase uh of his i found helpful um he said the first imperative is to embrace the indicative by which he means, look at how God has made things and embrace that. And from that will flow everything else. And I think it's a really helpful observation that in scripture so often it's the indicative that sets up the imperative, um, the way God has made the world, how things work. Um, that is That has a, an in, a, a sort of a deeply um, meaningful connection with God's written law or his spoken word it's not random it's not like we've got creation over here that's just one set of you know arbitrary systems and then in comes god what god's word and there's no kind of inherent connection there it's just kind of these are his ideas but they're not connected no god's creation came out of who he is and what he's like and his law matches that and 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 fundamentally my my parting challenge would be to those who who think um I can't speak about this issue, abortion, because I'm a man, needs to be women. I think the only way you can say that is if you do not understand what a man is and what a woman is 
and what abortion is. I think if we understood what those things truly are in the light of scripture, this thought would never occur to us. And indeed, we would be fighting very strongly against that thought because we know what men are, what they're called to be, according to God's word. We know what women are, wonderfully made by God um, in ways that are different from men. Uh, there are similarities, of course. We're both made in God's image. We're both human. We're, you know, we're, we're, we have so many similarities, but wonderful differences that actually make possible the human race and, and all that we're called to do under God. Um, so if we know what men are and are called to be, if we know what women are and are called to be, and we know what this thing that we call euphemistically abortion is, if we know what actually is going on here, living human beings deliberately killed in the womb, what is spiritually child sacrifice, a, a very significant phenomenon spiritually uh, to do with idolatry as well as mm. bloodshed. If we understood what these things actually were, then we would understand why men are not only permitted to speak, but they must speak. They must speak clearly. The women need it. The children definitely need it. And in fact, it's part of our calling as men and so in that sense we need it as well um and and we can be a part of um either in a very close specific sense restoring the family or in a kind of more universal sense in the church and in the world helping to restore the family at many levels because abortion is such an assault on the family tearing apart child mother and father but in speaking about it in the light of the gospel, we could be used of God to restore the family, to turn the hearts of children back to their fathers and hearts of the fathers back to their children. Um, it's part of our calling as ministers of, of the word.